a Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shall thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be, yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatever is more than these cometh of evil. Let's read it again. I'm going to read it from a, another translation that's written on a... Uh, it's a seventh grade reading level, so it's right on my reading level here. <laughs> he says, again, you have heard it said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. Says, but I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven because it's God's throne or by the earth because it's his footstool or by Jerusalem because that's the city of the great king. He says, neither should you swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair on your head white or black. Says, but let your word yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we pray that you will open our eyes to understand what it means to be honest. What would it look like in our lives to be people who strive to keep our commitments in a way that honors you, glorifies you, and reflects the fact that you always keep your commitments. I also pray that you open our hearts to see our failures to keep your law. Create in us a spirit that is uh, poor, poor in spirit, recognizes our faults and failures, and begs for your mercy to take care of our weaknesses. pray this in your name. Amen. All right, let's just start by setting some context here, right? What's going on? What, what are we reading? How can we understand what's going on? And the first thing to realize is we have pulled out a little section out of a really big sermon, right? We pulled out three or four verses out of a whole sermon that starts in Matthew 5 and ends in Matthew, the very end of Matthew 7, and that's called the Sermon on the Mount. Right? The Sermon on the Mount, you may have heard of it, is one of Jesus' most famous sermons. And the main idea of Jesus' sermon is he's talking about who gets into the kingdom of heaven. The very beginning of the sermon is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And at the end of the sermon, he goes through these three um, choices or these three scenarios where some people think they're going to get in and they don't. And some people who seem like they wouldn't get in do get in. Right? He talks about the wide gate and the narrow gate. He talks about a tree that bears fruit and a tree that doesn't bear fruit. And he talks about two houses built on two different foundations. One's on sand and one's on the rock. And he says that understanding this sermon, understanding this major point of who gets into the kingdom of heaven will help you be the person that's built on the rock. So that when the day of judgment comes, you're the person that will get into the kingdom. So this is, in my thinking, a very, very important sermon because it tells us what needs to be true of me if I expect to spend eternity with God in heaven when this life is over? In fact, I can't think of a topic that is more important to me, considering how short my life is now and how long eternity is. I really want to get this fundamental principle. I want to figure out this how to get my socks on passage because it's so, so important. What Jesus does is in this sermon, he brings out kind of the main thesis statement in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. He says, I'm going to tell you something. He says, unless your righteousness is greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
He says, a lot of people think, I'm going to get to heaven because I've kept the law. He says, and the law is very, very important. But understand this, if you don't keep it better than the religious leaders of your day, you're not getting in. And you got to think how shocking that was for these people. There was just a group of people that had come together in Galilee. It wasn't even, it was, Galilee had a fairly poor reputation anyway as a city. And these people had gathered together and Jesus says, the most religious person you know, all of his good deeds are insufficient to get him into heaven. He has not kept the law well enough to get into heaven. And so then Jesus opens up six different parts of the law and says, let me explain to you what's required. If you want to keep the law, this is what you need to do to get in. And we're looking at the fourth of Jesus' six examples. He says, one of the things that people think will get them into heaven is keeping their oaths. He says, so let me try to break that down for you and show you what it requires for you to be an oath keeper or a promise keeper, to be honest enough to get into the kingdom of heaven. And that's where we picked up in Matthew 5, Jesus says, this is what you've heard. Right? This is the way the scribes and the Pharisees would have taught it to you. He says, the scribes and Pharisees would have said, based on what was in the law, that you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. And Jesus is saying that the scribes and Pharisees think that you, it is true that you have to keep all your promises. And the problem is they use the word but, and it implies but especially those promises that are made to the Lord. Right? And so at first you're thinking, well, that seems pretty good. But Jesus is going to counteract that. He's going to say that's not exactly right. And the problem is, this, is that word especially. Let me read to you from a Bible scholar named Craig Keener, and he's going to explain what kind of is packed into that word especially. He says, Jesus addresses a popular abuse of O's in his day. He says, to protect the sanctity, sanctity of the divine name, he says, or... Let me, let me back that up. To protect the sanctity of the divine name against inadvertent oath-breaking, the common Jewish practice introduced kinuim, Hebrew words are very hard for me to pronounce, kinuim, which are surrogate objects by which to swear. Let me try to break that down into my own words, because I obviously can't say scholarly words. They said, we recognize that breaking an oath to God is a really, really big deal. And so what we're going to do in order to never break that commandment is we're never going to take an oath that uses God's name. We're going to use kinuim, which are these smaller things to substitute. And that way is not quite as big of a deal if you break, the, if you break your oath. It'd be a really big deal in their minds if I swear to God that I will give you a sandwich today and I don't do it because I've offended God. But if I swear to something less than God, then it's not as important. It's not as big of a deal. And so then the Jewish lawyers, the scribes and Pharisees, start debating, well, how do, how do we start ranking the significance or the bindingness of our oaths? Right? If God's the highest oath, but I don't want to take it because I recognize I might, I might break an oath to God and that would be big trouble, how can I determine how, what type of oath to use? And they start giving these substitutes of different weight. And some substitutes are really, really important, and some almost make it where it doesn't even matter if you break this one. Right? One example is this same scholar lists several people who said, you can make an oath by your right hand or left hand, 
And that one is basically non-binding at all. Because that's so far removed from God and his authority and his power, the hand of God is powerful and authoritative, but the hand of a person is weak and insignificant. So if I make an oath by my hands, then I'm basically free to break that oath. And Matthew, I'm sorry, and uh, Jesus is saying, I think you've misunderstood oath-keeping. There was a similar situation. I'll just tell you a personal story. I had a friend growing up who, he was kind of notorious for breaking his promises or his commitments. What he would often say, though, is, I never promised. Right? So he would say, hey, I'll be there at 5 o'clock. 5 o'clock shows up. He's not there. And we think, man, you just lied to me. He's like, I never promised that I would be there at 5 o'clock. And he thought by not using these words, he was able to escape the obligation that came along with them. That's just a less sophisticated way of doing what the scribes and Pharisees said. They said, there's some sort of words that will bind me more heavily than other words. And so Jesus is going to tackle that problem. Let's just go ahead and turn and look at verse 34 and see how does Jesus tackle that problem. I'll read it 34 through 37 again. Jesus says, but I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven because it's God's throne or by earth because it's his footstool or by Jerusalem because that's the city of the great king. Neither should you even swear by a hair on your head because you can't make a hair on your head white or black. He says, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. And I think what Jesus response tells us is that there's two big ideas. One is that keeping your oath is much, much deeper than you imagined. There is no loophole to get you out of keeping your word. And the other thing that this shows us is that none of us have kept it sufficiently. Let me try to unpack that for you. We'll start with Jesus demands full honesty. And we can see that by the way Jesus unpacks his argument. He starts with this really big example. He says, I told you not to swear, about, swear at all, and I say, don't even swear by heaven. Right? And in the Jewish mind, you would think swearing by heaven would be one of those big binding promises, because that was really closely connected with God, but not as binding as actually swearing by God's name. Right? So that would be a big promise. I would tell you, I swear by heaven that I will be there at five. And you would think he really is serious about his promise. But it's not quite as intense. There's not quite as much judgment if I had said, I swear by God I will be there at five. But Jesus says, you have to understand there's a connection between heaven and God. He says, let me read, let me read to you what I wrote here. He said, the logic is that God's name is the highest thing you could swear by. But if that's off limits, then maybe you could swear by the place where God lives. But Jesus says you cannot separate God and the place where he lives. He says God has authority over the place where he lives. So by swearing by the place where he lives, you've violated or you've associated yourself with God himself and therefore violated the command not to swear by God. Does that make sense? When I swear by something that God's associated with, I've basically equated God in there, and so I've broken the law. 
Well, he moves down to a less example. Well, okay, fine. God lives in heaven, but maybe I could swear by earth. God says, Jesus, you've broken the same principle there. Because heaven's where God lives, but earth is God's footstool. Nothing happens outside of God's control on earth. When you swear by earth, you've swore by something that God has authority over and has control over. God's still associated with earth. You haven't gotten around your obligation. Well, they said, well, fine, then. We'll swear by Jerusalem. That's just one little city. That has to be less significant. No. Jerusalem is a city where God has promised to send his eternal king who will deliver people from the penalty of their sins. God's intimately connected with Jerusalem. You cannot swear by Jerusalem and think you've escaped your obligation to keep your word. Okay, we'll move to something that is just so insignificant that is ridiculous. What if I swear by a hair on my head? Right now, it's ridiculous. of course, if I swear by a hair on my head, then you've got to think that's not binding. Right? Every time I brush my hair... Hair falls out. I can't even keep my hair in my head. I certainly can't make it turn white or black. I don't have any authority over my hair. It's so minusculely important that it doesn't matter. And God says, Jesus says, but it does matter to God. In fact, he's the one who has authority to choose what color hair you have. You didn't choose if you were blonde or brown hair or black hair. God chose that for you, right? You can't keep your hair in your head. You can't put it back when it falls out. God has authority over even the hairs in your head. So when you make a commitment on the smallest, most minuscule thing, you've made a commitment on something that God has authority and control over. Here's the kind of the structure of the argument. He's gone from the greatest to the least with the point of saying, even the smallest thing on this earth is under the authority and the control of God. And so there is no loophole There is no small thing that you can find that says, this has made it okay for me to break my commitment. There's never a time. There's absolutely never a time that I can make a commitment and it's not binding to me. That's the point. So when can I break my word? He says, never. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. There's some commentaries, in fact, a lot of commentaries have really focused on, is it okay to ever take an oath? And I think they've kind of missed the point here, right? There's places in the Bible where God talks positively about making promises or taking oaths, but what God is really, and Jesus is really hammering on here, is that no oath, no matter how small it seems to you, no promise that you've made, no matter how insignificant it seems, It's outside of God's watchful eye. No commitment that you've ever made can be broken without offending the God who watches every part of our life. He says, don't take an oath if you think that there's a way for this oath to be not as binding for you. He says, in fact, you should never even have to take oaths at all because people know that every word you say, you're committed to it. Every time you say yes, you mean your yes. And every time you say no, you mean your no. He's saying there is no loophole. As a Christian, how do we apply this? How do we apply this deep, God is committed to our commitments and to our promises 
and God wants us to keep those, how do we apply that in our lives? And there's probably thousands of ways that we could commit to apply this in our individual lives. But let me just bring out some big ones that I've kind of thought these apply even in my own life. And one is that if I'm committed to keeping my word, that means I have to start with keeping them in little commitments. One of the things that I, I can look back in growing up, I'm, I messed up a lot in this because every Saturday, my commitment, my obligation and my commitment was to mow the yard. And every Saturday, there was something that competed with that, and that was cartoons. Right? I loved cartoons. So I wasn't going to mow the yard until all the cartoons were off. And then after the cartoons came off, something else came up that was also super interesting. And by the end of the day, my tasks were not completed. And my dad would come home, and he would not be happy that I had not completed my commitments. And I would think, but is it that big of a deal? I can mow the yard the next day. Right? Is, God, is, is my dad's expectation for me to keep these little commitments a big deal? And Jesus says, yes. If you said you will mow the yard, then not to mow the yard is a really big deal. Keep your little commitments. I think this kind of comes into a second application is I want to ask myself, am I dependable? Right? Can people rely on me? If I've told them I'll be there at 5, will I be there at 5? If I tell them I will have this task done, can they depend on the fact that I will have it done? Do people have to force me to make promises and to make commitments and to sign contracts because they're just not sure I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do? If I'm really committed to keeping my commitments, another thing I'm going to do is be careful about what commitments I make. Right? I'm going to worry about things like time management. Have I committed to more things than I can possibly do? Have I put myself in a situation where I'm not going to be honest? I'm going to have to have lied to someone. If I'm really careful about keeping my commitments, will I guard my time in a way that allows me to keep my commitments? There's another thing that popped up yesterday. This is a fourth possible application. Is if I'm committed to keeping my commitments, then I'm going to be very committed to making sure that I'm only committing myself to things that are true. Let me explain this. Yesterday, Ken and I saw somebody on Facebook that had posted something that they thought was an attack on Christianity. And they posted this. They just reposted it as soon as they thought something had come up. But come to find out, this thing wasn't true at all. Right? What had happened is you lived in a world where the father of lies, Satan, has put out lies of which Christians sometimes say, all right, I'm gung-ho with it. And they have taken a stance for something that never was true. Right? They never did any due diligence to say, am I committing myself only to the things that are true? I think if we're committed to keeping our promises, if we're committed to keeping our commitments, we're going to be careful about not only do we have the ability to keep them, but also are the things we're committing ourselves to good and true in the first place? Have I committed myself to things that are worth committing myself to? And probably in the internet age, it's never been easier to be taken in by 
people who want to discredit you, who want you to commit yourself to things that aren't worthy of commitment. And so I think we have to guard ourselves against cavalierly committing ourselves to the truth of something or to a cause that isn't worth our commitment. But I don't think that that's all that Jesus wants us to think about, right? Jesus wants us to be people that are deeply committed to keeping our commitments. Jesus wants us to be people that if we made a promise, we're going to keep our promise. But in the context of this passage, that's not all that he's doing. He also wants us to realize you haven't done your job. You haven't kept your commitments. Not the way you're supposed to. And I think that we see that by the way Jesus interacts with the Pharisees here. He says, the problem with you isn't just that you haven't been honest. Your problem is that you have overestimated your own ability to be honest in the first place. He says, the problem isn't just that you have broken this commandment. The problem is that you thought that I could have a righteousness that was worthy of getting into the kingdom of heaven. He says, you got to think, look, look again at verse 37. He says, every single time you tell a lie, every single time you take an oath that is more than just let your yes be yes and your no be no, you have aligned yourself with the evil one. What's his point there? He's saying the very fact that you have to do more than say something and it's trustworthy is proof that the evil one, the father of lies, has influence over you. Every time I tell a lie, I look more like the father of lies than I look like Jesus. Saying if you're committed to honesty, there should be no need for you to say, in this case, I'm not like my, the father of lies. I promise this time I'm not like him. You see, the problem with us, I feel like I've gotten muddled here, so let me try to state this really clearly. The problem with us isn't simply that we've been dishonest. The problem is that we are so deeply connected to a world that is against Christ that we're in a system where we can't get away from having to do contracts, from having to make promises, from having to take oaths. Because you live in a system that is marked by lies. And it's not just that you live in that system, you've contributed to that system. It's not just that you happen to live in a world where nobody will trust you unless you write a contract. You're part of the problem. The Pharisees' problem wasn't simply that they were dishonest. It's that they couldn't believe that they were dishonest. They couldn't believe that their problems were enough to keep them out of the kingdom of heaven. I'll give you an example. In the chapter 9 of Matthew, the Pharisees see Jesus hanging out with some people that are famously dishonest. Jesus is hanging out with the tax collectors. It's in Matthew chapter 9, verse 10, and these Pharisees start grumbling. If Jesus really loved God, he wouldn't be hanging out with, Pharisee, with tax collectors and people who are dishonest. He would be hanging out with the people who are very honest, very trustworthy, people who have defined honesty to the smallest degree so that we never break our oaths to the Lord. And so they were angry that Jesus was hanging out with the tax collectors. Listen to what Jesus says. It says, as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, I'm starting in verse 10, 
Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came, and they reclined with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need of a, of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, the Pharisees' biggest problem wasn't that they were dishonest. It's that they couldn't understand that they needed mercy. They thought, I'm the only one who is not dishonest. I'm the one who is trustworthy. And Jesus says, no, you will never experience Christ and you will never get into heaven until you realize that Jesus demands to be merciful. He demands for you to recognize that you're dishonest and to beg for his mercy. Let me read you another interesting verse in 1 John. And this is really encouraging. It says, if you recognize that you're a sinner, this is what you do. If you confess your sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And then verse 10 is interesting. But if we say we have not sinned, then we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We have to be really careful when we come to Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Jesus says, there is no room for you to live a life of dishonesty. It is not appropriate for you to break your vows and promises. It's not appropriate for you to say, I'll be here at 5 and not show up until 5.15. That's inappropriate. But he also says, it is inappropriate for you to say, and I'm innocent. It's inappropriate for you to be able to look at other people and say, they always break their commitments. They never do these things, but I'm okay. Jesus says, if you say you have not sinned, then you are calling God a liar because he says, you need mercy. You're not righteous enough to make it to heaven. But if you will say, I need mercy, you confess your sins, he promises to be faithful and just to forgive you your sins. What I'd like to do is move into a time of response, a time for us to ask God, one is to forgive us for our dishonesty, to forgive us for breaking our vows and our commitments, and also a time to ask God to teach us to be honest, to teach us to reflect his honesty and his commitment to his own commitments, his own promises. I'm going to ask the worship team if you'd like to come on up and lead us in music as we prepare to close. And as they're heading up here, I'm just going to pray that God will shape us into people who recognize our failures and also strive to reflect his perfection. Dear Lord, we recognize our faults and we recognize our failures. We recognize that you are perfectly honest. You keep your word at all times and in all ways. And we recognize that we are so dishonest that people can't trust us without contracts and commitments. They can't trust us without vows and promises. And in this way, we've reflected that we are more like the evil one than like you. Pray that you will convict us. Show us specific areas in our lives this morning of where we have not kept our word. Show us this morning specific areas of where we need to work on honesty and promise-keeping, trustworthiness. Build that into our lives so it's characteristic that we look like you. 
but also build into our lives a deep commitment to begging for mercy, to recognizing our own sinfulness and recognizing our need to be forgiven. Don't make us and allow us to be self-righteous people like the Pharisees who thought they've somehow obtained to your perfect standard. Instead, help us become people that beg for your mercy and ask you to make us into people like you. In your name I pray, amen. We're going to open up the altar now as the music team prays or sings. And if you'd like to respond, this is the time to do that. Part of that response might be to confess, to come up and say, here's a way that I haven't kept my promises. Another part of that is to say, I know that I haven't kept my promises. And I need to know how I can be sure that Jesus will forgive me. If you're not sure 100% this morning that Jesus has forgiven your sins, has taken care of your dishonesty, will you please talk to somebody about that this morning? Will you make sure that you tell somebody here, I know I'm a liar, and I want God to forgive me for that. How can I know that he'll forgive me? This room is filled with people, myself included, that would love to spend this afternoon talking to you, whether for a few minutes or a few hours, of how you can be 100% confident that God will forgive you of your sins.
I'm thankful for the Lord who is always honest and always keeps his promises. Thankful that he's promised one day he's going to return and he's going to set everything to right. We won't live in a world that's marked by dishonesty and we ourselves will no longer be marked by dishonesty. I'm looking forward to the day where he fulfills all of his great promises. But he says we can always trust him. We can always trust him. I'm going to ask Brother Mike, would you mind praying to dismiss us? And then after Mike prays, you're dismissed.